Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's Christmas Day 1940, and although it's only 10 in the morning, it's already hot in outback New South Wales. Before it becomes sweltering, two-and-a-half-year-old Desmond Clark and his older sisters, one aged nine, the other seven, have an errand to run. Granny has asked the little ones to take a box of cakes to an old-age pensioner who lives nearby. It's only a short walk quarter of a mile or so across a railway line and through a strand wire fence. At all times the children will be visible from their grandmother's home. So off they go. When they get to the fence though, Desmond has trouble and has to be pushed through by his sisters. Not long after that he says he doesn't want to walk anymore and sits down on a stone declaring, quote, I'm going back to mummy. His sisters tell him to stay where he is until they return. But when they get to the pensioner's home, they look back and see little Desmond in his singlet, blue trousers, shoes and socks and straw hat, walking back to Granny's place. 20 minutes later, when the sisters return, their mother asks, where's Desmond? Immediately, the family begins a search of the area around where he just was, but he's nowhere to be found. Desmond's father calls the police and soon the whole village of Boogledy is out looking. With the alarm raised, there's one man more likely than any other in the state to find this lost boy, and that's first-class tracker Alec Riley of Dubbo Police. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the third and final part of the episode Tracker Riley, Outback Hero. By Christmas Day 1940, Tracker Riley, who was by then in his mid-50s, was known far and wide for his incredible abilities, 
most recently having found the body of missing woman Ruby Green and collected the evidence that convicted serial killer Albert Andrew Moss, aka Mad Mossy. But while he'd just six months ago been promoted to first-class tracker, as an Aboriginal man, Alec Riley remained a second-class citizen. Like all of his people in Australia, he was denied the right to vote, and in New South Wales was subject to the control of the Aboriginal Welfare Board. Under this system, he and his family had no choice but to live in segregation on a reserve nearly four miles outside the town of Dubbo, the very place he'd been faithfully protecting for the past 30 years. Further, while he was paid less than his white police colleagues, they would sometimes take some or even all of the credit for his work. Yet in the recollections of Claude Oakman, who transferred to Dubbo in 1940 and policed with and was a friend of Alex, Tracker Riley went about his life and work uncomplainingly. We can find an example of his patience in a 1950 Sunday Herald article about him. After describing how well-known and respected he was in Dubbo, the journalist Gordon Coleman continued, quote, A white man, they'll tell you when they talk about him. Alex Riley smiles when he hears it. He understands that a compliment is intended and he's tolerant. While Tracker Riley wasn't given to complaining about the myriad ways in which racism affected him, he was haunted by how it had stopped him saving one life in particular. The landscape in which Desmond Clark became lost on Christmas Day 1940 was daunting and unforgiving. Thousands of acres of Pilliga scrub, open country, creeks, mountain gorges and peaks. With scorching daytime temperatures, every second counted in this search. The local community came together fast and by the afternoon, 50 police and civilians were looking for the boy. By nightfall, they hadn't found him their efforts not helped by 30 points of rain. Men continued looking through that night, relieved the following morning by the ever-growing army of searchers. In the recollections of Tracker Riley's daughter, the late Ruby McGuinness, her father travelled the 100 miles from Dubbo to Boogledy to lend his expertise, but that's as far as he got. The area he wanted to search the open country leading to the mountains was under the control of a station manager who refused to allow any Aborigines on the property. Tracker Riley wasn't only denied the chance to help physically, but he was ignored when he said that by focusing on the scrub, they were looking in the wrong direction. The man who had the best chance of finding Desmond Clark alive was sent back to Dubbo as the number of civilian searchers beating the scrub on foot over the next 72 hours grew first to 200, then 300 and then 400, with one report putting the figure as high as 750. 50 police were also on the case and there were 70 more searchers on horseback. Constable Adam Scotty Denham, who we met in the episode In the Execution of Their Duty and whose life and career we'll explore in an upcoming episode, came from Sydney with the famous bloodhound Disraeli. But this police dog could only follow the boy's scent as far as where he'd last been seen. Even so, for the next eight days, Scotty and Disraeli walked 15 hours a day, covering some 250 miles, with the dog handler wearing out a pair of boots. 
Yet, with all of these resources and efforts, not a single trace of Desmond was found. From the Sun newspaper on the 29th of December 1940, quote, Every tank, waterhole, bush, haystack, furnace, sawmill and house within four miles of the point where the boy was last seen have been examined. Hope of finding the boy alive has almost disappeared. By New Year's Day, Superintendent Kennedy of the Sydney CIB had arrived to take control of the case. He and other officers couldn't understand how such a little boy had vanished without trace. They found it impossible to believe a child so young could have wandered very far in such thick scrub. And if he died in the area, his body surely would have been found by now. Constable Denham and Disraeli, for instance, had been over every square inch of the 10 square mile search area two or three times. Now police theorise that Desmond Clark may have been kidnapped and taken somewhere. Or maybe he'd been hit by a car with his body dumped far away. Investigations and interviews were made along these lines throughout the district, yet no evidence was found to support either theory. By the 7th of January 1941, the Sydney Daily Telegraph, along with numerous other New South Wales newspapers, reported that the search was over. Then, at the end of the month, a sock and shoe were found on a property near Boogledy's old chalk mines, with Desmond's mother identifying the items as having been worn by her son the day he disappeared. Detective Sergeant Frankish and Tracker Riley came from Dubbo to check it out. Yet their investigation went no further. That is, there were no newspaper reports of Tracker Riley taking to the hills, finding the body or, alternately, declaring himself stumped. Given his tenacious interest in the case and what happened later starting at that very spot, to me, this strongly suggests that he was again prevented from doing his job. Eight months after Desmond Clark disappeared, on Sunday the 3rd of August 1941, Tracker Riley officially went on holidays, using his 10-day leave to head to Boogledy with two cadet trackers he was training. Tracker Riley had finally been able to gain access to the property. He'd tell his daughter Ruby that it was because the man who'd previously refused him access had passed away. In the Dubbo Liberal newspaper, Tracker Riley's theory was finally reported. He believed that when Desmond Clark wandered off, it would have been in the direction of open country rather than thick scrub, and from there he would likely have followed the creeks. As the day wore on, the little boy, lost and now in the shadows of gorges, would have become scared and tried to get to higher ground in the mountains to be out in the open and see where he was. Tracker Riley also later told his daughter Ruby that the boy would have walked towards the light of the moon. Having reached the area where Desmond Clark's shoe and sock had been found, Tracker Riley and his cadets camped that Sunday night. The next morning, they set out and scoured the gorges, camping that night in the mountains. Early on Tuesday, they continued the search. Tracker Riley had covered just another 200 yards up the gorge towards Boogledy's old chalk mines when he saw it. Desmond Clark's Little Skeleton 
still in the clothes he'd been wearing on Christmas Day, lying on his back, on a ledge, partly buried by silt. In just 24 hours, Tracker Riley had accomplished what hundreds of police and civilians had been unable to achieve in two weeks of searching. Desmond Clark's body had been found less than three miles from where he'd last been seen. Locals were amazed that the little boy had walked so far and climbed so high. Yet Desmond Clark had behaved just as Tracker Riley predicted. It was thought that the little boy had become exhausted in the heatwave conditions, and it was reported that he'd likely died on the second day of the search, possibly from dehydration or, conversely, possibly drowning in rainwater that had washed him down to his resting place. Given that there had been rain, it's also possible he stayed hydrated just a little longer. In an original handwritten coronial inquest register dated the 23rd of August 1941 as found at ancestry.com.au, it was recorded of Desmond Clark, quote, found dead, no evidence to show how, when, where, or by what means he came by his death. The point was that whether he died on day four, day three or day two, if Tracker Riley had been on the case, Desmond Clark may have been saved. At the time he recorded his open verdict, the coroner was also reported in the newspapers as saying he believed Tracker Riley was due public recognition for his continued enthusiasm for finding the boy and his skill in carrying out this self-appointed mission. As the area's major local newspaper, the Dubbo Liberal's articles about Tracker Riley finding Desmond Clark need to be scrutinised for how it now accounted for what he'd initially done or hadn't done immediately after the child disappeared. On the 5th of August 1941, the Liberal reported, quote, In the original search for Desmond Clark, Riley was anxious to work on his own theory, but he was hampered materially by the well-meant attentions of a large crowd of searchers. Original search surely refers to the immediate search for the boy, that is, the crucial days just after Christmas, and this would align with vague early newspaper mentions of black trackers being on the scene. The headline to a Dubbo Liberal piece on the 9th of August read, Tracker's theory might have saved lost child. Yet the actual article had this to say, quote, Unfortunate circumstances surrounded failure to find Desmond Clark, two and a half, whose remains after an eight months search were found by Tracker Riley. The article continued, Had Riley been available in the first few days, his theory probably would have saved the life of the child. But unfortunately, he was not available when the child first disappeared. This would seem to say, indirectly, that he shared blame for the child's death. The article then claimed that Tracker Riley had been out of the area. Quote, However, when he returned to the district, Superintendent Jay Quinn, who took an active interest in the search, sent him to Boogledee. Unfortunately, 14 days had then elapsed from the time the boy disappeared. 14 days after Desmond disappeared, That'd be the 9th of January, 1941. 
which seems a bit late to be referring to the original search. The article went on claiming that when he arrived, Tracker Riley had explained his belief that Desmond Clark had wandered across open country to the mountains, but even then, quote, searchers opposed this theory, contending that the boy would wander in the direction of the thick scrub. The Dubbo Liberal said Tracker Riley then set out to test his theory, but, quote, found there was not a possible hope of tracking the child within the immediate locality of his disappearance as searchers had destroyed all tracks. He believed that tracks would have been found easily on the firm, sandy soil. Not only had 14 days elapsed between the disappearance and the arrival of Riley, but for six days heavy rains had fallen, and when he tried to cross the Boogledy Creek, he was unable to do so. He then feared that the body might have been swept away, so he had to be content with a search along the stream and into the heavy bushlands. For months, Riley persisted that his theory was right, and recently he approached Superintendent Quinn, who was equally concerned. On the 23rd of December 1941, the Dubbo Liberal reported on its front page, quote, It is a notable fact that the misguided enthusiasm of voluntary helpers prevented him from following a certain theory in the original search, and it was not until hope had been abandoned for the child that he had been able to test his belief. So, at least in this newspaper, it had all been a tragic chain of events. Tracker Riley hadn't been available. When he had arrived, his theory had been dismissed thanks to the misguided enthusiasm of voluntary helpers who'd also hampered materially his efforts with their well-meant attentions. Yet that, in the newspaper's version, was by the by because he hadn't been able to test his theory anyway due to the trampling of the search party and that daunting swollen creek. Here's what doesn't add up and what supports what Tracker Riley told his daughter Ruby. For starters, no newspaper, including the Dubbo Liberal, made any mention of Tracker Riley's involvement until he went out to investigate the sock and shoe at the end of January 1941. There was only brief and vague mention that black trackers were on the scene. Had he arrived back in the district to finally join the search on the 9th of January, it would have been newsworthy. As for the story that he was out of the district at Christmas time, this is feasible, but it also doesn't at all fit with his circumstances or previous known and future festive season activities. Alec Riley was a materially poor Aboriginal man in his mid-50s who had a wife and eight children and who was surrounded by family at Tauberga Reserve. It's not like he had to go anywhere to be with his people at Christmas. And, as we saw in Part 1, Tracker Riley was around and on the job at Christmas in 1918 to find a lost child named Elsie Herriot and, as we'll soon see, he'd be around and on the job the Christmas following Desmond Clark's disappearance. But, assuming he was away, his character would suggest that he would have dropped everything to help. In the end, he was the one who kept pestering his superiors about Desmond and who was willing to use his holidays to bring closure to the Clark family. As for the contention that he was thwarted by a swollen creek, we've already heard that one of Tracker Riley's early heroic efforts involved rescuing settlers in wild floodwaters, and he'd done this sort of work numerous times since. 
Remember, this was the man who police called on regularly to retrieve bodies from the treacherous Macquarie River's deep water holes amid snags and logs. Further, if Tracker Riley didn't join the search until 14 days after Desmond disappeared, how was his theory discounted by a large party of searchers? The Daily Telegraph and other newspapers across the state had reported the search called off by that time. Also, why would any searchers still left at this point when all hope was lost refuse to entertain his theory? This refusal rings far truer as a heat-of-the-moment decision made on Christmas afternoon or Boxing Day by a racist station manager and white boogledy bushman who didn't want to be told their business by some blackfella from Dubbo. And even if, as the Dubbo Liberal claimed, Tracker Riley had, from the 14-day mark, been able to test his theories, why didn't he then find Desmond? Or, in late January, when he and Detective Sergeant Frankish came to investigate the discovery of the shoe and sock. The explanation of trampled and washed out tracks preventing him from succeeding doesn't make any sense because he hadn't needed them eight months later to locate the body within 24 hours. To me, these inconsistencies and the Dubbo Liberals' vague, veiled commentary support what Tracker Riley told his daughter Ruby about being refused access to the area he wanted to search. Not that any newspaper at that time would have been willing or even able to lay the blame for a white child's death at the feet of a white station manager who'd refused to use the skills of the state's best black tracker. Ruby McGuinness would also recall that her father remained deeply upset by the case because he firmly believed he could have saved the boy. If he'd been found in time, Desmond Clark might now be an 82-year-old with adult children and grandchildren of his own. On the 23rd of December 1941, the Dubbo Liberals' front page carried the news that Tracker Riley had been made sergeant the first Aboriginal man to achieve this rank in the New South Wales Police Force. And the promotion was backdated to the day he'd found Desmond Clark's body. But the newly promoted Sergeant Tracker Riley wasn't in Dubbo that morning to read the Liberal. That's because at midday on Sunday the 21st of December 1941, a five-year-old boy named John Stein of Sydney had disappeared in the bush near Bathurst. 20 police, 200 civilians and 600 soldiers from a nearby military camp searched all that afternoon and through the next day and night. This time their number included Tracker Riley, who, despite it being the Christmas season, had travelled the 125 miles from Dubbo to join the search. Tracker Riley again worked with one of his cadets and again with Constable Adam Scotty Denham, who'd come from Sydney with police dogs Disraeli and Zoe. And it was these three men who, at 8am on Tuesday, the 23rd of December, found little John Stein. Like Desmond Clark, he'd gone for higher ground, discovered on a 1,000-foot mountain two and a half miles from where he'd last been seen. Unlike Desmond, he was alive and unhurt, if scared and exhausted. One of the searchers asked, How are you, son? His reply was, I want my dinner. 
For John Stein's parents, his safe return had to be the best Christmas present they ever received. I've been unable to determine what became of young John Stein, but if he was five at the end of 1941 and is still alive, he'd be 84 years old now. Four months later, on the 13th of April 1942, a 76-year-old man named Joseph Howard wandered away from his home outside Dubbo. It was some time before the alarm was raised. When it was, and Tracker Riley was called in, he had no trouble following the man's footprints over nine miles through scrub, and he found the old bloke, dehydrated and suffering from exhaustion, just in the nick of time. It was for this, and for finding John Stein, Desmond Clark, Ruby Green, and countless other people, and for helping to bring Mad Mossy, Roy Governor, George and James Earsman, and other bad guys to justice, that in January 1943, Tracker Riley received another unprecedented honour for an Aboriginal man in Australia. The New South Wales Premier, William McKell, made the announcement in a statement that began, quote, I have learned with pleasure that the Governor, Lord Wakehurst, has received advice that the King has approved of the award of the King's Police Medal for Distinguished Service to Sergeant Tracker Alexander Riley, an Australian Aborigine who has given long and highly meritorious service in the New South Wales Police Force. The statement continued, Except for a break for three years, Sergeant Tracker Riley has served with the police force continuously since 1911 in the Dubbo district and, on many occasions, accomplished phenomenal feats of tracking over wide areas of country in saving life and in pursuit of criminals. The Premier went on to give brief accounts of Alec Riley finding lost girl Elsie Herriot in 1918 and the tracking work that caught murderer George Earsman in 1921. The Premier's statement continued, These are but two of his many fine achievements in tracking and observation on record in police annals, and the royal recognition he has received will be warmly approved by every officer in the service. Sergeant Tracker Riley, like many other Aborigines, has shown in citizen service and recognition of individual responsibility a spirit which many of us could seek to emulate. This story, quoting the Premier's fine words, made news all over Australia. Yet the next time a New South Wales Premier spoke about Sergeant Tracker Riley, it'd make the newspapers for a very different reason indeed. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Proud of his award, which was actually officially known by that stage as the King's Police and Fire Service Medal, Sergeant Tracker Riley continued serving Dubbo throughout the 1940s. But by the end of the decade, he was approaching retirement age. Before Alec hung up his uniform, though, he'd be involved in one last case whose lurid details saw it splashed all over Sydney's newspapers. Claude Wood, aged 36, of Coonamble, but formerly of Dubbo, where he'd been well-known as a rugby league player, was a married shearer. 
In the spring of 1949, he'd been off work due to a knee injury for which he'd received tetanus injections. On the 23rd of September, he saw his doctor who said he was right to go back to work. Claude got back on the clippers and got back on the beers with mates on the evening of the 29th of September, though he told his friends he had a sore throat. Returning home around 9 o'clock, he had a bottle of beer and went to sleep. The next morning, just before 8 o'clock, and feeling a little unwell, he took a headache powder and two packets of salts. Soon after, he started convulsing and collapsed on a bed in the sleepout. His 42-year-old wife, Ethel, screamed, went into the backyard and waved to neighbours for help. They came and they called a doctor. In the bed, Claude was still conscious, but his face was contorting and his arms were spasming. Then he had two blackouts, his arms went stiff, and around 8.30, five minutes before the doctor arrived, Claude Wood died in agony. While Ethel claimed she thought her husband had died from a tetanus infection, the post-mortem examination revealed that his wound had actually healed. What had killed him were the six-tenths of a grain of strychnine found in his stomach. Ethel's story was that Claude had complained of feeling sick the day before he died and yet had gone out drinking anyway. She also said, quote, If Claude's death took place from strychnine poisoning, it is a mystery to me and I am unable to throw any light whatsoever on this death. I can't believe he would take his own life. On the 11th of October, Sergeant Tracker Riley and his colleagues, Detective Claude Oakman and Detective Sergeant Jack Burke, made a search of Ethel Wood's home and backyard. Then Sergeant Tracker Riley continued his search in the backyard of a next-door neighbour. As he did so, Ethel Wood appeared at the fence dividing the properties and asked him to come into her house for a cup of tea. Sergeant Tracker Riley said no thanks and resumed searching. Ethel Wood stayed where she was, leaning over the fence, watching him work, during which time she asked him a further three times to come back to her place for a cuppa, and she began to cry when he repeatedly refused and kept about his work. Then, in the tall grass between the neighbour's garage and the fence, Tracker Riley found something. It was a tin containing strychnine. The tin wasn't weather-damaged or rusted. From its position in the grass, Alec believed it had been put there relatively recently, though he wouldn't speculate as to whether it had been dropped over the fence from the wood side. When the neighbour was interviewed, he said he'd done a big yard clean-up in late 1947 and the tin hadn't been there then. Ethel Wood denied knowing anything about the tin and, correctly as it turned out, said police wouldn't find her fingerprints on it. The case became far more sensational when Ethel's own sister, Thea Doolan, claimed Ethel had been having a torrid and risky affair with a local taxi driver behind her husband's back. Thea Doolan also claimed that Ethel had once said she wanted to poison her husband Claude. In November 1949, the coroner returned an open verdict at the inquest into Claude Wood's death, saying that while he died of strychnine poisoning, it wasn't clear whether the poison had been self-administered. 
Regardless, the following month, Sydney detectives charged Ethel Wood with her husband's murder, and she was held without bail in Dubbo pending her trial. Ethel Wood stood trial for the murder of her husband Claude in the Dubbo court from the 18th of April 1950. As a witness, her sister Thea Doolan was severely compromised by the standards of the day because she had a chequered love life and had lost her children to the state. But what was far more problematic and still would be today was her frank admission that she absolutely hated her sister. While Theodulin painted a picture of a bad marriage, neighbours claimed that Claude and Ethel Wood had been good, quiet people. Meanwhile, another witness, Terry Kermond, said he'd given Claude Wood some strychnine in a blue bottle about two years before his death for the purpose of poisoning cats. But what he'd recently signed was a statement saying he gave the dead man the poison just a few days before he died, suggesting that Claude had killed himself. Sensationally, he now said Ethel had come to him after the inquest and said, You poison rabbits, don't you? You'll get me out of this if you say you gave it to Claude a few days before he died. Terry Kermond claimed she'd then gotten him to sign a statement when he was blind drunk and didn't know what he was doing. Sergeant Tracker Riley testified in far more sober fashion about what he'd found and how the accused had behaved that afternoon. After hearing him and other police witnesses at the end of a seven-day trial, the jury was unable to reach a verdict and the judge ordered a retrial. On the 13th of July 1950, with Ethel Wood's fate hanging in the balance, Sergeant Tracker Riley reached retirement age and found himself at the centre of a controversy. That was because, despite having been in uniform for 36 of the past 39 years, during which time he'd become Australia's most decorated Aboriginal policeman, he was going to be denied a police pension. The official reason, as put forth by the Commissioner of Police, J.F. Scott, was that he wasn't covered by the Police Regulations Superannuation Act. Under this act, 4% was deducted from the salaries of all members of the police force and set aside for their retirement. But, the commissioner explained, black trackers, like women police and parking police, were actually sworn in as special constables and therefore were not members of the regular police force. To offset this, he said, women police were told when they enlisted to take out a £500 life assurance policy so they'd have some means when they retired. Black trackers received no such advice. In the wake of this announcement, the Secretary of the New South Wales Police Association, Mr F.C. Lout, said no action would be taken on Alec Riley's behalf in this matter. So, it was left for Dubbo Police to set up a fund for their colleague. Sergeant Tracker Riley's treatment made news in every state of Australia. After a story appeared in Melbourne's The Sun newspaper, Dubbo Police received two letters from people in that city, each enclosing £1 for the fund. Others wrote letters to editors to vent their anger at this manifest injustice. The most poignant, from a local bloke named Mr V.C. Nolan, appeared in the Dubbo Liberal on the 1st of August, 1950. It began, quote, 
I would like you to make common knowledge my feelings and also I feel sure the feelings of anyone who has had the fortune to come in contact with Alex Riley in the line of duty or through his sporting interest. The man went on to recount how in July 1921 one of his friends had gone missing and Tracker Riley had found him when no one else could. Quote, I should like to compliment Alex on this speed in picking up the track and also in his attempt to beat the dark by running wherever possible. This shows the type of man Alex Riley is and illustrates the unfairness of passing such a man out of the service without some reward. This must surely strike even those who have not been associated with him as being nothing short of ingratitude. On the 20th of September 1950, Ethel Wood faced her second trial for the murder of her husband in Dubbo's Supreme Court, and now retired Sergeant Tracker Riley again gave evidence, as did his friend and colleague Detective Sergeant Jack Burke and other police witnesses. On the 23rd of September, with the Crown case concluded, the jury said it didn't need to hear the defence and, after conferring for just seven minutes, found Ethel Wood not guilty. Side note, just as she left court, Ethel Wood was arrested for bigamy. Turned out in 1935, she'd married her now-dead husband Claude Wood while her first now-dead husband, William Wilkins, was still alive. It actually wasn't sinister. She'd later be acquitted after explaining she'd thought William dead when she married Claude. The very same night that Ethel Wood was acquitted of her husband's murder, Detective Sergeant Jack Burke, who was transferring to Armadale, was farewelled by Dubbo's businessmen and citizens at the town's Masonic Hall. There, they also took the opportunity to pay tribute to Alec Riley and presented him with a wallet of notes amounting to £56. Dubbo's mayor, his police colleagues and friends praised the tracker's tireless service and devotion to duty over the past 39 years. Ever humble, Sergeant Tracker Riley stood to thank them for their kind words and best wishes for his retirement. In early November 1950, someone did stand up for Alec Riley and that was the Dubbo state member, Mr R.G. Medford, who raised his police pension case in the state parliament, seeking answers from the Premier. Mr Medford said, quote, I say quite definitely that any man, whether he be an expert or not, who gives 39 years loyal and valuable service to his country, as did this man, should be entitled on retirement to something more than the mere age pension. Sergeant Riley is an Aboriginal with all the characteristics of a true gentleman, and the record of his long service shows that he has something that is possessed by few persons in the community. He continued, I sincerely hope that the government will deal more sympathetically with the case of Sergeant Riley and give him and others like him in the future adequate compensation. When he was first employed as a black tracker, this man was not told that he would not be entitled on retirement to any superannuation, and he was not even asked whether he was prepared to contribute to a fund for this purpose. In the circumstances, how could he have been expected to have made any provision for his retirement? While Premier McKell, seven years earlier, had sung Sergeant Tracker Riley's praises when announcing he'd been awarded the King's Police and Fire Service Medal, Premier McGurr's response included this quote. 
To the best of my recollection, Sergeant Tracker Riley was a temporary employee in the department for some years and was employed in the way that the department usually engages trackers. He was not on the permanent staff. Sergeant Tracker Riley is in the same category as many temporary officers in the state who do not contribute to a superannuation fund, and there are no means by which such officers could receive superannuation benefits. Leaving aside the racism and sexism that prohibited Aborigines and women from being regarded as regular police, what was more galling was that Sergeant Tracker Alexander Riley had been contributing to the pension fund. His great-granddaughter, Bernadette Riley, showed me the police personnel file page that clearly showed he'd been a contributor. That this wasn't raised in 1950 suggested that he didn't know he'd been signed up and that the police commissioner and the state premier's minions didn't bother checking. Or, if they did, they didn't want to back down and look foolish. Either way, Sergeant Tracker Riley was left without a police pension. Side note. Lillian Armfield, Australia's first policewoman, retired in December 1949 after 34 years with the New South Wales Force, and she didn't get a pension either. The reason given that time was that in 1915, when she'd enlisted, she'd been a few months past the age of 30 and so hadn't been entitled to contribute to the superannuation fund. And that was an entirely different excuse to the one offered by the commissioner just seven months later when Alec Riley retired. In Lillian Armfield's case, in 1965, when she was 80, the Premier Robert Askin authorised a special pension for her in recognition of her service. Alec Riley had no such luck. Despite his treatment, Alec Riley appeared to hold no grudge. In that Sunday Herald interview, published in July 1950, he reflected on his career and future, quote, I got most satisfaction out of finding people who were missing or lost. Catching criminals was interesting, but it never really appealed to me. Now that I am out of the force, I will stick to bush work. But if they want me back on any job, I'll help in any work except investigation of crime. Other than that, he said he would, quote, Concentrate on the training of athletes. I have one dark horse who should win the big event at Bendigo next year. The article noted that though he was retiring, there'd still be a tracker Alec Riley with Dubbo Police. That was his son, who'd helped him find Ruby Green's body back in 1936 and who'd followed his father's tracks into uniform. For the next two decades, Alec and Ethel Riley lived on the Talbrigo Reserve granted permission to stay in the same simple weatherboard home they'd shared since around 1930, even as others were demolished and families moved into Dubbo as the mission system was slowly dismantled. Dawn magazine, which was put out by the Aboriginal Welfare Board, sometimes would feature this grand old man photographing him around his home and briefly recounting a few of his tracking adventures. Ethel Riley died on the 7th of August 1968 and Sergeant Tracker Alexander Alec Riley died on the 29th of October 1970 at the age of 86. While Alec had been treated shamefully on his retirement, in death he was acknowledged by the New South Wales Police Force. 
On Sunday the 1st of November 1970 in Dubbo, Tracker Riley was accorded a tribute that looked like a state funeral. Out the front of the hearse and led by a motorcycle patrolman, more than a dozen police officers in dress uniform, including the state's top-ranking superintendent, marched along Brisbane Street in solemn formation towards the Holy Trinity Anglican Church. Within its sandstone walls, it was standing room only as 300 mourners, family, friends, colleagues and dignitaries paid their respects to the man who'd been a husband, father, grandfather, mentor, coach, veteran policeman and inspiration to both the black and white communities of Dubbo. Alec Riley was laid to rest beside Ethel in Dubbo Cemetery. Today, while many Australians have never heard Tracker Riley's story, he does live on through his large family and is celebrated by the people of Dubbo who can ride their bikes along the Tracker Riley Cycleway, which was dedicated to his honour in 1997. That same year, a short documentary called Black Tracker, made by his late great-grandson Michael Riley and granddaughter Bernadette Riley, was also shown on ABC TV, which in turn inspired director Rachel Perkins' fictional 2001 dramatic musical short feature film, One Night the Moon. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. This has been the final episode of what turned out to be a pretty long season two. I do hope you've enjoyed it, and if you have, I'd love it if you could help other people find the show before season three gets started in a month or so. The best way to do that is by telling a friend or two and or by leaving a review and rating at iTunes. For more information about this and other episodes, go to ForgottenAustralia.com and for updates on season three, go to the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. This podcast was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.